Um, we're going to do things slightly uh, differently this evening. Uh, we'll have our reading in just a moment, but I've decided it is, I know it's very, very muggy, and I think I'm going to bring forward some of the things which I was going to say in the uh, message proper, as it were, I'm going to say now before we read from God's word. Um, I think it will be better that way and it will um, make the message a little bit shorter if we're struggling. Um, So we're going to read in a moment from Job, the book of Job, and chapter 37. Um, And as I said this morning, you'll notice there's a quite colourful set of sermon notes uh, this evening and um, I don't want to take credit for that. I did not draw that. I did not create those notes. But as I said, I um, preached on this passage at Westerning Baptist Church a few weeks ago. And uh, after the meeting and the next day, I got sent this wonderful <laughs> creation, which um, put my sermon into um, pictorial form. And I was amazed at the, um, uh, all that, the work which went into it. So I wanted did it share to share it with others as well. So those are the sermon notes for later, and you can uh, see uh, how all these points come out of this passage shortly. Um, but we are going to be reading from Job chapter 37, but to make it, help it make sense, I really do need to uh, give a little overview of the book of Job so that we understand where Job chapter 37 fits in the book as a whole. Uh, The opening chapter of the book of Job introduces us to a very strange scene. Uh, We're first of all introduced to Job, who is the most righteous man, we're told, in all the earth. But then the scene shifts to heaven and uh, to the court of God, as it were. And Satan stands before God and he... Uh, challenges God because God has said to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? There is none more righteous than him in all the earth. But Satan challenges this and he says, Job only serves you because you give him good things. He's a rich man. He has a large family. He has many blessings. He's well respected in his community. Uh, you've given him all these blessings, so of course he honours you. Of course he serves you. Take those things away and he'll curse you. So God says, okay, you can take away his possessions. You can take away his wealth and his riches. You can even take away his family. And Satan does so, and in one day... Job is stripped of his herds and his flocks and uh, his children even are killed in a whirlwind. And he is bereft of everything. And yet we're told, yet still Job did not curse God. God says this to Satan and he points out that Job has not done as Satan said he would. Has not done as Satan said Job would. So Satan goes, ah, well, that's because you haven't yet touched him. Uh, Yes, you've taken away his possessions and you've taken away his family, but he himself remains unscathed in his body. Uh, If he was to start to hurt physically, then it'd be different. So God allows Satan to afflict Job 
physically, except God says you must not take his life. And Job is uh, struck with boils and sores, and he is miserable, and everyone almost forsakes him, and he goes through great misery. And even his wife says to him, why do you hold on to God? Curse God and die. Very encouraging advice from his wife. But even then, Job holds true to God. He says in Job chapter 2, Shall we not accept evil from the Lord's hand as well as good? And we're told he did not sin with his lips. Uh, Three of his friends come to comfort Job and they sit with him. And I think they sit with him for about 40 days, just mourning and there's silence. And at the end of chapter two of Job, spiritually, things are in good shape. Physically, it's terrible. Physically, it couldn't be worse in terms of loss of possessions and health and everything else that we value in life. But spiritually, Job is doing well. And his three friends are doing well as they stay silent. The problems start in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we're told Job opens up his mouth. And the pain and the suffering has been going on too long. And the affliction is too great. And Job doesn't curse God, but he curses the day of his birth. Uh, He says, it'd been better if I hadn't been born. So although he doesn't explicitly curse God, he does question God's wisdom. He questions God's wisdom in allowing him to be born as he curses the day of his birth. At this, Job's three friends pipe up. And the next 20 or so chapters of Job are... Job and his three friends arguing, essentially. Uh, And this big section of the book, which many find very confusing, is basically the three friends accusing Job, saying, God doesn't punish righteous people, so you must have done something wrong. But Job says, no, I haven't done anything wrong. But then he starts to question God, saying, I'm not sure God is just because he's allowing me to suffer in this way. And Job's defences get longer and longer and longer. And his three friends' speeches get shorter and shorter and shorter until eventually they stop speaking in chapter, or just before chapter 32. And then a new character steps on the scene. And this is a young man called Elihu. And he stayed quiet all this time, but he's been listening. He's been listening to the conversation. And he stayed quiet because he's a young man, and all the other men are older than he is. But now that they've stopped speaking, Elihu speaks up in chapter 32. And we're told he's angry. Uh, He's angry at Job's three friends because they accuse Job but they've got nothing to back up their accusation. They can't point to any evil in Job's life, because as we were told at the beginning, Job was the most righteous man in all the earth. So though they're accusing Job, they've got nothing to back it up. But also he's angry at Job, because in defending himself, Job starts to question the goodness of God. 
He's willing to, as it were, throw God under the bus in order to defend himself. And Elihu is angry at that. And so Elihu speaks from chapter 32 right through to the end of chapter 37. And that's where our reading is this evening. Uh, We're going to read the last or nearly last section of Elihu's speech to Job and his three friends. So it's Job chapter 37, verse 1. Elihu says, At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven, his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. For he says to the snow, fall on the earth. Likewise to the gentle rain and the heavy rain of his strength. He seals the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. The beasts go into dens and remain in their lairs. From the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind, and cold from the scattering winds of the north. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen. Also with moisture, he saturates the thick clouds, he scatters his bright clouds, and they swirl about, being turned by his guidance, that they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. He calls it to come, whether for correction, or for his land, or for mercy. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Elihu speaks to Job. And he says, God is a God who sends the rain. He sends the storm. And he has purposes that we cannot imagine. And in a moment, we're going to look particularly at verses 13 and 14. And to see what Elihu's wisdom can teach us when we face affliction, even when it's not as great as Job's. Now we're going to pause there, and we're going to sing again our third hymn, number 746. And it's a hymn which, in many ways, uh, teaches that same thought. Uh, The hymn is 746, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. And I've chosen it particularly for the second verse, last two lines. It says, Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know. His voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. So we'll stand to sing 746 before we look at verses 13 and 14 in more detail. So let's stand to sing 746.
So let's look now at chapter 37, verses 13 and 14 in more detail. And just to refresh, uh, remember that Elihu is speaking here. And we were told back in chapter 32 that he is angry. He's angry at Job's three friends, and he's angry at Job himself. He's angry at Job's three friends because although they've been accusing Job and saying, you must have done something wrong, otherwise God would not be afflicting you in this way, they've not been able to back that up with any real evidence to back up their accusation. They're just... Um, empty words. But he's also angry at Job because Job, in defending himself because of his righteousness, which is real, which is true, nevertheless, he's shown a willingness to question God. And he's almost saying, well, I know I'm righteous, but God, I'm not so sure. He's not treating me the way he ought to be. But do you notice With both those points of view, the point of view of Job's three friends and Job himself, they both make the same wrong assumption. They both assume that suffering and affliction, or should I say, God would not allow suffering and affliction on righteous people if he is righteous himself. That's the assumption they both make. They say, if God is righteous, he would not allow righteous people to suffer pain and affliction and suffering. Job's three friends say, therefore, therefore, Job, you must have done something wrong because Job's righteous, you must be wrong. Job, on the other hand, opens the door to the possibility, no, I know I'm righteous, therefore maybe God isn't as righteous as we thought he was. But what Elihu explains in these chapters, and God himself explains, or in a sense explains in the following few chapters, is that that assumption is completely wrong. God can be righteous and yet allow affliction and suffering to come on righteous people. And all the while remain good. All the while remain God's. And that's the essence of what these verses are saying, which we're looking at now. Now let me read from verse 10 again. Uh, Elihu says, By the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen. Also with moisture, he saturates the thick clouds. He scatters his bright clouds and they swirl about being turned by his guidance that they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. He causes it to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. Elihu points to the clouds. He points to the storms and the rain, and he says God is in control of all these things. He, as he puts it in verse 12, they swirl about being turned by his guidance. He brings the storm, he brings the rain, he brings the snow, he brings the hail, and he uses it to accomplish his purposes. 
But Elihu says his purposes are wider and greater and deeper than we can imagine. And he gives three examples. Uh, He gives just three examples of reasons God might send a storm on the land. Three reasons that God might bring a terrifying, terrible uh, uh, lightning and thunder and heavy rain onto the earth. He says in verse 13, it could be for correction, it could be for his land, or it might be for mercy. Let's look at each of those in turn. The first one, he says, is God may send a storm for correction. Now, this is the one, for some reason, our brains sort of automatically run to. Uh, If a terrifying storm happens, perhaps lightning hits a house or a terrible flood sweeps away a village, our immediate reaction is that it must be judgment from God. It must be God giving us a message. And sometimes, Elihu says, that is why God sends a storm. Sometimes he sends it for correction or for judgment. Uh, We saw that, of course, in the great flood in Genesis. The wickedness of man was uh, large on the earth, and so God sent a catastrophe, and he warned them that he was going to send a flood, that they must run and they must flee into the ark to be saved. He sent that flood for correction as for a warning and as a judgment. And it's not just the great flood. Uh, many times, if you read the Old Testament, uh, God destroys his enemies with hailstorms, uh, with even rain showers. And by various means of changing the weather, he brings correction to wake his people up, to tell them, turn back to me. God does use these storms in life, not just in weather, to correct us, to put us back onto the right path as a warning. The mistake, however, is that we assume that's the only reason God sends storms into our life. Be Elihu says, no, that's not the only reason. One reason might be for correction, but secondly, he says, it might be for his land. It might be for his land. You might think, well, what does that mean? Well, the land needs rain, doesn't it? Uh, crops need to grow. Uh, the trees in the field, even if they provide crops or not, need to grow. And God created this world. The world is God's garden, and he cares about the world that he has created. And sometimes he sends a rainstorm in order to water his garden. And it's simply for that reason. Sometimes there is no greater reason than that. Uh, Look at it this way. Um, Have you ever considered that every time you water your garden... Uh, Think of the catastrophe you might be causing to some ant colony um, underneath burrowing away in your flower bed. 
uh, or to the bugs, I think. Can you think of the, the disaster if they could have record books? They would write it down as the great flood of 2023 when you were just simply watering your dandelions. And you had no thoughts of those ants. Your concern was simply with watering the lands. Now, of course, God knows the consequences of everything that he does. But just because some disaster happens in our life, don't immediately assume it's because of something terrible that you have done or to warn you about something terrible you are about to do. God might have some completely separate purpose and you, if I can put this in a reverent way, it's not the right word, but you get just simply caught in the crossfire. We are not the center of the universe. God is. And sometimes God, in his wisdom, allows us to go through suffering because that thing that we have to endure is for a greater good that we know nothing about, like the watering of those plants. The problem is we're so (laughs) self-centered. We think that any event that happens must be about us. As Elias says, sometimes the storm comes for the land. It's not about us. It's something else entirely. Something we may know nothing about ever because it doesn't concern us. That lies in God's will, not our own. And that's really the essence of God's conversation with Job, which you can read if you want to, uh, from uh, chapter 40, uh, sorry, chapter 38 onwards at the end of Job. And God just asked Job question after question after question, saying, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Uh, do you know where I get the snow form to, for, to form the, uh, the snowstorm? Uh, do you know how I govern the sea? And he asked him question after question. And Job has to say, I don't know. We don't know all the purposes of God. We need to take a step of humility and say, maybe, just maybe, the discomfort we feel in any event in life may simply be for some purpose outside of us that God knows that we don't. Sometimes the storm is simply for God's land. But then Elihu gives a third reason. Uh, He says a storm might come into our life for correction, It may be for his land, or it might be for mercy. God might send a storm, but his purpose isn't for correction. His purpose is to pour grace on us. We don't enjoy suffering, do we? None of us welcome it. But if we're honest... Probably some of the most profitable times of our lives, looking back, have been times when we have gone through hardship, when we have gone through difficulty and suffering. Often God has done more in those times than he has in times of ease and comfort and plenty. God has wider purposes than we can imagine. Sometimes he sends difficulty and inconvenience as a mercy. 
After all, it's the rain which causes the crops to grow. And we need to eat the crops. It might be a nuisance sometimes. It might not come at the right time in our judgment. Nevertheless, if we wait, if we endure, we enjoy the harvest at the end. Sometimes what we might see as an inconvenience and a curse might actually be a relief and a blessing. If not to us, perhaps to others. Perhaps not now, but maybe later. So what's the application to us all? Well, Elihu gives us the application because he tells it to Job in verse 14. He says in verse 13, God causes the storm to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. That's the application to us. Stand still and see the wondrous works of God. In other words, we should be very slow to judge God. We should be slow to judge others. That was the mistake Job's friends made. But we should also avoid the mistake of Job. We need to avoid judging God too quickly. Everything God does is right. And we cannot see every reason. And if you try, it won't work. I'm sure every single one of us could give a hundred instances of things that we're completely baffled by why it happens in our life. Something which seems to make no sense. Some suffering we had to undergo. Some suffering someone else had to undergo. And it seems so nonsensical. And we say, why God? But how can we possibly know all the purposes of God? It's nonsense to think that we could ever understand fully. So let's not waste time judging God. Instead, let's stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. And that's comforting because God is not just a megalomaniacal tyrant in the sky. He's a father who loves us. He's a father who cares for us. And he may bring all sorts of baffling things into our life, but underneath are the everlasting arms. That really is the lesson that Jesus taught when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things shall be added unto you. That came in the context of Jesus' teaching about anxiety and worry and fretting. And we're very apt to fret, aren't we? We're very apt to say, oh, what's God doing? Why is this happening? What's going to happen tomorrow? It's a very natural thing for us to do. But Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom. Worry about the things God has told us. And all these other things he'll take care of. Not necessarily in the way we expect, not always in the way we want. Nevertheless, we can leave it in his hands. It reminds me of a 
story I shared, I think I've shared it several times, uh, about that recently uh, licensed pilot who was flying his private plane on a cloudy day. And because he wasn't experienced, uh, he was nervous when he saw that the cloud was hindering his view of his landing. And he realized he's going to have to rely on the control tower to bring him in safely to land. And so he radioed into the control tower and they started giving him detailed instructions for how to land his plane safely. But as he was coming in in the thick cloud, he started to get panicky. He started to get afraid because he couldn't see where he was going. And immediately there came a stern voice over the radio. And it said, you just obey instructions. We'll take care of the obstructions. And in essence, lovingly, that's what God says to us. He says he's made things very clear to us. He's made what we need to know very, very clear. And there are things which are going to baffle us. There are things which are going to cause us to question why. But God, with all the love and the care and the compassion in the world, says to us, you obey my instructions. I'll take care of the obstructions. That's, in essence, the lesson of Job chapter 37, verses 13 to 14. He causes a storm to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. And that's what I've chosen as a final hymn. I don't think I could really pick any other hymn in light of that. It's number 85, uh, written by the poet William Cooper, who experienced uh, a degree of suffering himself in his life. But he wrote this wonderful hymn, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And look particularly at verse Three and four, it says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So we'll close by singing number 85.